Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Not my favorite baseball game last night. Probably not anyone's favorite baseball game last night, unless there's someone out there that really dislikes Alec Manoa and loves Juan Soto. Jay's lose 9 1. Feels like we're back. Nah, maybe not all the way to square one with Alec Manoa, but square like 1.5. He gives up four earned over three innings. Three hits, five walks, zero strikeouts, a loud home run to Juan Soto. There are some qualifying factors within there that Alec Manoa and John Schneider would have you heed. Hey, the Juan Soto home run came after Manoa got pinched on what probably should have been a third strike. In the third inning, when he allowed a couple more, a Fernando Tatis ground ball ricocheted off of third base and went high uh, over Matt Chapman and into left field. The strike zone was called enough that Pete Walker got tossed very early in the game uh, for making a point of (laughs) pointing that out while he was talking to Alec Manoa. It was a bit of a weird one. Uh, Within all of that, though, Alec Manoa's slider, very ineffective. He walked five batters and only induced six swing and miss in his outing. Didn't strike anyone out. Even some of the called strike Stuff, if you want to argue that he got pinched, kind of thought Danny Jansen had a bad game behind the plate watching him back. I was sitting down the third baseline, so you can't, you obviously can't judge balls and strikes too accurately from there. But looking at the game day and then watching back the Manoa innings, Danny Jansen, not the, not the best of frame jobs, not, not the best day behind the plate. So, um, and honestly, sometimes you're not going to get those calls and you have to be able to power through it. Now, it's unfortunate that given what Alec Manoa has been going through and where he's at on what's supposed to be his path back to a standard rotation spot that those bad breaks happened and they didn't snowball necessarily in terms of the, the score. They certainly snowballed in terms of the pitch count. He threw over 40 pitches in the first inning uh, through, I think 36 pitches when there were two strikes in a count, just a, a complete inability to get guys out. He leaves the game. They're down four zip. Nate Pearson helps him get out of that one, but then gives up a, a pair of solo shots himself. Jay Jackson gives him two good innings. Mitch White has has trouble over his two innings. The Manoa thing is the, the headline item. The Jays also only got one run. So had this game been closer, had Manoa been uh, a little more competitive, had Nate Pearson kept them closer longer, they didn't have the bats going other than Bo Bichette, who, by the way, I did, I did a thing on Blue Jays Central pregame. Um, about Joe Musgrove and how he's minimized the slider against righties. And hey, Bobachette jumps on sliders early in counts. I, and I think I closed it by saying I would be shocked if Joe Musgrove threw Bobachette sliders early in counts. First plate appearance, he throws him two right away in both singles. Uh, Joe Musgrove watched the program. Um, also, that's a really good pitch more often than not. So uh, you get it there. But Bobachette, about the only bright spot with, uh, with a pair of hits in that one. Uh, not a lot of bright spots other than. Pre-game, I got to see our next guest, Keegan Matheson of BlueJays.com, of MLB.com. That's always a treat. And Keegan, I will have you know, I did what you asked. I, I was going down to um, fan seats after doing some media pregame, and you said, Blake, have a beer for me since you can't have one in the press box. I did that for you, buddy. I, I took one on the chin. I, I had an extra beer for you. You're a man of the people. You go out of your way, really, to do the dirty work. 
You know, the dirty work that people don't see. I respect it. I'm a beersman. There's there's not much more to it than that. Now, we, we do have a concession. Rela- obviously, we're going to talk a lot of Alec Manoa here, but but we have a concession-related drama because yesterday was Looney Dog Night, and, and as people have made a big deal of, the number keeps growing higher. And uh, you're with me that you think it's it's maybe a little inflated these days. I've been on the conspiracy train early, and then – we stand on the field, 5 o'clock, there are already 60 hot dogs sold. Where do those come from? It makes you ask questions, makes you ask why. And the rate at which those grow, I, I, even when I look around a sold-out stadium, I don't see 75,000 hot dogs being eaten. I don't. I don't think everybody is there to eat them. And um, it, this could also be a real effect of me losing my mind in the middle of the season. And this is what I've chosen to cling to while I sink with this ship. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable uh, underlying cause for us looking into this. You know, 42,680 people there last night to use Shai Davidi's hot dog metrics. You know, that's less than two dogs a person. Um, but the lines are what they are. And I know you can get four at a time, but it's something it's something to monitor. We'll get some stack cast data on that as well um, in the in the coming weeks. We'll, we'll see what we can do to, to get to the heart of those numbers. Um, the Alec Manoa of the game last night, though. Hot dogs aside, I mean, even numbers aside, 41 pitches to get through the first inning, only, quote-unquote, two runs allowed in that inning, a a very loud Juan Soto two-run shot. Uh, He gives them three, can't can't get any outs recorded in the fourth. Before we get into some specifics, where are you personally at high level with, with Alec Manoa after one good but not great start back against the Tigers and now one that looked like every start he had before he got sent back down to the complex. I think my answer is, I don't know, which is a worrying answer. Yeah. And if you are the blue Jays, you are trying to evaluate exactly what you have in Alec Manoa before the trade deadline, because you need to figure out what your appetite is and how big a need the starting rotation is. We're not talking about the next decade here either. We're talking about the next few weeks. So if you do not believe that Alec is going to bounce back these next few weeks and be a three ERA starter, that impacts things. Do you think there will still be some struggles? And I mean internally and realistically, not what the Blue Jays say publicly. Sometimes that message has to differ, but what they truly believe and project internally. What do they think he's going to do? the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months. I don't know right now. And I think you need to live in reality and acknowledge that this year has been bad. There was a good start against the Tigers coming back, but that second start, whoever it came against, was always going to be the bigger challenge. The Detroit Tigers are not MLB's most fearsome lineup at this point. I think they are third last in MLB and OPS. And Manoa, that was a good way to start him out. But the Padres did hit him, and there were some things out of his control. Yes, there were a couple of bad bounces. There were a couple of close pitches. If I see another screenshot of a strike zone, I might break down and cry at this point. But he wasn't finishing hitters off. He wasn't getting that big pitch when he needed it. And his ability to attack the zone wasn't quite there late in counts, not what you were looking for. So I don't know where they are with Alec Manoa right now, which is very rarely uh, an answer I would give or even think is halfway valuable. But I think at this point it captures kind of the, the question and the problem the Blue Jays are facing because they need to know where they are 
But that's a tough, tough thing to figure out. It is. And, you know, we can get into some of how that maybe affects their thinking at the trade deadline or even with the timeline for Hyunjin Ryu uh, in a minute here. But I, I, I do want to dig in a little bit on some of the specifics of that start. And, of course, there are the five walks to zero strikeouts, the pitch inefficiency. I mean, the, the pitch inefficiency has been a, a tr- problem all year. And we're back to a point now where he has almost as many walks as strikeouts on the season. Um, there's clearly, you know, not that ability to get a lot of swing and miss right now and I wonder how you feel because we can go back to sitting in John Schneider's office after the start that Alec Manoa made in the complex league and we heard of course the oh it's not as bad as the stat line he checked all the boxes on things we want him working on and then there was a little bit of except the slider the slider wasn't really there but everything else he checked the box on he goes up to double a new hampshire he makes a much better start uh but again it's not the slider it's the fastball that looked really good the changeup that looked solid he didn't really have the slider going and that was the case again against the tigers where there were some okay results, but the movement on that slider, um, you know, the ability to locate it on the edges wasn't quite there. And then yesterday was the lowest break on the slider that he's had in his entire career. When you look at that pitch specifically, and it was his best pitch last year, there seems to be an incongruency here in what the talking points have been with the Blue Jays about. He's checked the boxes at each stage. He's done this that we like. He's done that that we were looking for. But his most important pitch has at no point in this progression been there for him. What what do you make of that? That is the most important part of all of this. I think that slider. And we have heard a couple of times now that the line is not as bad as it looked. The line is what counts. Yeah. We're in late July, and the line is what they count. Uh, this has been a season talking about a lot of underlying numbers or things that should, could have happened. They count what really happens, unfortunately, and there's a lot of teams in this league that are overachieving. So it's possible to do that. And for Manoa, the slider is so important, not just for getting those swinging strikes late in counts, which was a big issue, like you mentioned off the top, Blake, in that first inning, but for setting up hitters better, for attacking hitters early and keeping them off balance, keeping them on something that's not just your fastball early on, that has to come back for Alec. Now, whether that's a mechanics issue in a big picture or even something smaller like the grip, the hand movement as he's releasing it, these things can be very, very small to get that extra movement, but he needs it. He really needs that because Alec needs to be missing bats. If you are going to live in the strike zone, you need to miss some bats every once in a while. And where this gets particularly challenging is when you're thinking about the postseason. And this brings us to the Blue Jays and their own realistic, what they really think internally. You have to think about the postseason. You do not think about the Detroit Tigers. You have to think about facing a good team in the wild card, in the ALDS. It reminds me of once every three months, you will see a team with an incredible plan against Kevin Gossman and his splitter, and they will hit him. That's the type of game plan you're getting every single game in October. You are getting a team's best game plan, their most thought out, their most detailed, and their most committed game plan from hitters. What does that look like against Alec Manoa right now? What does that hitters meeting look like for the Houston Astros right now about Alec Manoa's slider? I don't think it would be good at this point. So that slider needs to come back 
Because if a team is facing Manoa in a big spot, and this is all about the playoffs now, you need to win in October. This is not another wild card and dive. It's all about how he would fare in a big game like that. Right now, looks like a pitcher you can game plan pretty good. And looks like even, you know, let's let obviously the absolute best case scenario is Manoa rediscovers his form of last year. I think that's more of an off season and for next year consideration, the reasonable, you know, we'll say 80th percentile outcome right now is probably he settles in as like a solid guy every fifth day, but you're probably not putting him on the playoff roster unless certainly not for a wild card series. Uh, and unless, you know, unless things change with his performance um, pretty significantly, even in a seven game series, maybe he's not on there. The other element of this though, is that you have to make the playoffs and the Jays, despite all the issues with the fifth starter position have stayed in a playoff spot. They're in the second wild card spot right now uh, with a little bit of a, a cushion, two and a half game cushion on, on the Red Sox, who are the last team out. They're still technically only five and a half back of the American League East, but you have to get there and there's a lot of baseball left to be played. So Keegan, um, the plan from here with Alec Bono, I know they're not going to tip their hand and, you know, last time we did this dance, it was a lot of, well, we'll see and everything's on the table and then, you know, the next day he was optioned down and, and then even his his call back up kind of came, you know, not out of nowhere, but it caught us off guard a little bit. So maybe we can't plan like that, but there are some things ahead that could change this plan. And those include the potential return of Hyunjin Ryu, who's going to throw another, uh, another rehab game at AAA Buffalo this weekend. The hope is he can give five or six innings, go 80, 85 pitches as he continues to progress. And then the trade deadline is ahead. Um, next steps for Alec Manoa in your mind, I, th- I think he's probably uh, almost certainly getting another start this weekend because they need the body and we're st- still not a thousand percent sure about Kevin Gosman. But let's play out a scenario where it doesn't go that well in Seattle. What what are we looking at here? That's when this gets tough because when Ryu comes back, let's pretend this is a, a perfect world where the Blue Jays have six healthy starters. My feel for that right now is that a six-man rotation can work for a week or two. You don't want to do it the rest of the way, but the Blue Jays do have, I think, a stretch of 17 games straight yep. in 17 days. Maybe you roll through a couple of times. Similar to how they did the bullpen strategy without Manoa, you wanted to do it a few times, not let it be your identity. And over the course of going through a six-man rotation two-ish times, it will figure itself out. That's not the most technical answer, but in baseball, give something a week, it'll sort itself hmm. out. There will be a health issue, a performance issue somewhere. You'll see how it works out. Now, in that situation, looking at the Blue Jays' pitching group, someone like Yusei Kikuchi, for example, you can see realistically how that works in a bullpen role if the Blue Jays want to go that way. Someone like a Gossman, a Bassett, that's never a conversation. Someone like a Ryu, I don't think that makes sense. Manoa, I don't think makes sense in that situation. We're not talking forever. We're talking about the end of the season. Kikuchi, you can see it. He did it last year. At least the strikeouts were there. But Manoa, the Blue Jays need to see those results. They need to see them soon because that trade deadline is there. And the Blue Jays are in a spot where they don't have a big need. They don't have that glaring, our lineup is great except for one spot need. But pitching is always there. And they can always be involved in that market. So I I think the Blue Jays are a team as well that, likes to target pitching that has some control left. So they're thinking a bit down the road. 
how aggressive do they need to be? Because is Alec Manoa your number three, your number five? Where are you at with that? They need to figure that out fast over his next couple of outings, and that involves a a bit of a risky decision because you're projecting forward off of a guy who's not showing you much consistency at all this season. Yeah, and I've said, and I think I said this to you yesterday at the game too, is, is, you know, the worst-case scenario is not – Manoa's bad now. Ryu struggles in his rehab star. Chad Green has a setback. The worst case scenario is actually they do just enough that you aren't aggressive at the trade deadline and then things go wrong. That is the worst case scenario. Um, so I, I guess to that extent, at, at least it's better to get the, the Manoa question marks out now. Um, yeah. I, I do want to talk trade stuff, but but the Hyunjin Ryu element of this. So um, all reports are, are pretty positive. The stat line's positive. The video we can see from his AAA start and some of the stat cast data it's positive. Even the the velocity ticking up from, you know, averaging 88 to coming in at, at, you know, averaging around 89, touching 90 a little bit, not quite all the way back, but, but reasonably uh, on the right track. Where would your expectations be for Hyunjin Ryu rejoining this team? Because I, I have had personally had trouble calibrating that because at the time he got injured last year and he was coming off a little bit of struggle and was only averaging about four innings a start. I kind of didn't think we'd see him back this year. I, I thought it was, uh, you know, at his age and the seriousness of that injury. I, I'm a little surprised we're, we're talking about this at the end of July here. Where would your expectations be for what Ryu can give this team? Yeah, entering the year, and I'm, I'm sure I said this a few times, I thought anything you got from Hun Jin Ryu was a bonus. If you got nothing, that's fine, entering the season. He's going to have to pitch some legitimate, meaningful innings. And... It's so difficult to project him because I think the Ryu that we saw at the end before his injury was a guy battling through the injury already. So his location was not right. The velocity was not right. And when he's throwing 89-ish, he's getting hit, but especially when he did not have that exact pinpoint location that has made him so special in the past. So what would you be happy with at this point? Would you be happy with a... 4.1 4.1 ERA and some starts that get you through five, six innings. I'd be thrilled. I think so. I, I think so. If you're the Blue Jays, I think you love that. It's you, What you want from Ryu is not dominance. He's not going to come back and win a Cy Young in two months. It's not going to be anything fireworks and amazing. What you want is steady and consistent at the back of your rotation, and you're happy because you trust your lineup. The Blue Jays have one of MLB's best bullpens. Just get it through five or six innings with two or three runs scored, and I think the Blue Jays are thrilled. I think he is capable of doing that. He is coming back in incredible shape. I mean, every time I see Ryu at Rogers Center, I'm turning my head. I'm making notes of how I need to live my life this offseason. He was fantastic. But I think it's uh, important to keep expectations in check, but you only need to be good for two months. You just need to get hot for a little bit. And Ryu knows how to do that. This is a guy who has been there and done that. He can empty the tank for two months now that he's healthy. I think there's some some fun upside there. And frankly, I think an incredible story. You know, coming back as the guy who was the first one in, that first big signing, even a year earlier than I thought the Blue Jays would make that big splash. And here he comes back to try to finish it off, trying to, to really do something big at the end of this contract with the Blue Jays. A hell of a story for a guy who has been an incredible pitcher here for a lot of years and before coming to Major League Baseball as well. Yeah, it's a it's a terrific story, and you, you I mean, we can see it already. The the 
impact that he has on, you know, the dugout and the clubhouse. Like everyone likes having that guy around a, yeah. a lot on top of, you know, the performance that he could kick in. Now, Keegan, that's that's a lot of positive and a lot of, you know, best case scenario. There's also a scenario where, you know, the velocity dip and at 36 coming back from this, he's not super effective and maybe effective enough to still go every fifth day. But it takes us back to the question that you kind of teased a little earlier. And it's with the Manoa question marks, with the Ryu question marks, with the potential for, hey, look, maybe you look at the trade market and there's not a, a bulk guy with high end stuff that you really like. And you start to if you're Ross Atkins, you start to talk yourself into Yusei Kikuchi as, as that multi-inning bullpen guy, especially now that he has some of the control stuff uh, better handled. Um, maybe you do look at the starting pitching market, or, or maybe you do look at another Kikuchi type that could potentially start or give you some length. Um, how, where do you land on, and, and I know we have you know almost two weeks more to, to make this decision, so we'll get another Ryu starter two, get another Manoa starter two, but you know if the deadline were tomorrow, are you making calls on starting pitchers, or do you trust that, hey, come playoff time, four of these six guys might be enough? I think you need to ensure yourself. Uh, I think the Blue Jays have had, inc- I don't want to call it incredible luck, because it's important to give a lot of credit to the guys who have stayed healthy, and stayed in that rotation. As veterans, as guys like Bassett and Gossman, the more I'm around this game, the more that impresses me. Guys who can stay healthy and in rotation. The Blue Jays were MLB's last team to need a number six starter this season, and it took them a while to need that, and it was only because of a performance issue. Gossman's side issue, which doesn't even sound all that serious, is really the first health issue we've seen from this group. It's been incredible. That doesn't last forever. I I think you are not just betting on improving your depth right now, but ensuring yourself against what if someone runs out of gas or runs into a physical issue late in the season. You knock on wood, you hope it doesn't happen, but you also live within the realities of Major League Baseball where that does happen. I I think the Blue Jays will and should be involved on the starting pitching markets and the bulk approach like you've seen in the past with the Ross Stripling trade, the Mitch White trade, which worked out differently. Uh, You've seen that approach before from the Blue Jays. You have also seen them really like to target guys that have some team control left, like a Jose Barrios, even on the position player side, they've targeted guys with some control left beyond just a straight rental. So I think the Blue Jays need to frankly protect themselves. And if they can raise their ceiling a bit, fantastic because these chances, just big picture philosophy, these don't come around a lot. You're not going to have Vladdy and Bo, George Springer, all of these players together forever. This doesn't last forever. Think about the late 90s, early 2000s Blue Jays teams. When it goes away, it goes away. So when you have an opportunity, like the Blue Jays absolutely do right now, you've got to go for it and you've got to make sure that you are covering your behind and making sure there's not a a weak link that could emerge a month down the road. That's really important. Yeah, it's it's a tough spot to be in. And obviously, you know, I'm always of the mind. I don't care how good this bullpen is, how nice the back end looks. I'm always looking at bullpen arms. It's the you know, it's the starting question. It's the like, I, I think 
upgrading on the Mitch White spot is a is a pretty straightforward one, even though he's out of options and things like that. I mean, you just they they can't even trust him for length or mop up at this point. So you've you've got to at a minimum address that, whether that's the Chad Green spot or the Ryu spot. But anytime you can you can upgrade the pen, you have to do it now. There's also an argument to be made, and you mentioned off the top, they don't have a specific hole to fill in the lineup or in the defensive alignment, but we're looking at a team that has struggled enough against left-handed pitching at times that yes, the the top guys in the lineup are righties who hit lefties pretty well over a large enough sample, but they've got a handful of lefties who don't hit lefties particularly well uh, enough that I'm checking Jordan Luplo's triple a stats regularly because you know, in his small samples, he's been a lefty matcher um, that that's kind of where we're at with the, the utility of, this team's bench right now. Um, are, are you looking at something like that a, as well? Or do you think there are potential internal solutions to, you know, get a little more out of that, that last bench spot or two? The internal answers are close, but I think the blue Jays would be better served finding more of an established MLB piece this year. It, it's not a, uh, a knock on the internal pieces, but a lot of these top young names maybe need another year. And this does not need to be a big splash. It can be something similar to bringing in a Whit Merrifield last year. Like that level of transaction, I think, makes a lot of sense. And the Blue Jays have essentially played with a 25-man roster this year. Mm-hmm. When Nathan Lucas comes up to bat, there are times where I'm thinking, oh, okay, that's who's on the roster as the 26th guy. Okay, <laughs> I haven't seen them in a week. Whether it be he or Luplo throughout the season, that spot has barely been used. And a lot of the time when it's used, it's just like last night, a late game. Hey, it's 8-1, get in that bat, play the field for an inning. The Blue Jays can do so much more with that spot. Now, a situational bat that can hit some lefties like that makes a lot of sense. They don't necessarily need to be a brilliant outfielder because you have Whit Merrifield who can go out there and play the outfield. In a pinch, you have Biggio who can go play some right field. You don't need them to be an elite defender by any means. That can make this a bit simpler. But I think rounding out that lineup just with a complimentary piece, you don't need to change the whole room, but fill out your roster, make it a 26-man roster that you can use actively instead of more of a passive 26 spot, which is where they've been so far. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And if you do look at the AAA, what's going on down there, if you are the type of fan that box score peruses for the Buffalo Bisons, yesterday was about the best box score you could possibly imagine. Um, Ernie Clement and Spencer Horvitz both had five hits. Davis Schneider homered. Addison Barger had six balls in play come off the bat at 100 miles an hour or harder. And by the way, in his AAA debut, Aralvis Martinez homers. Um, none of those guys imminent help for the major league club, maybe even potential guys. We, we hear their names in, in the trade market the next couple of weeks, uh, but Aurelvis's development, the improvements he's made with the strikeout to walk ratio and what we're hearing about some of the swing decisions since that kind of lull he hit batting average wise in late April. Um, obviously he, he's gotten the promotion here. He is still very young for the triple a level. What are you hearing about? Um, you know, what has clicked for Aurelvis Martinez to earn this, uh, this promotion triple a. This has been an incredible turnaround because his month of April was not just bad luck. He looked terrible. He did not look good. He looked like a prospect who was about to tumble off of a lot of lists, certainly a lot of top 100s, and now he's starting to creep back on. He has looked incredible uh, since then, and full credit to him for adjusting his approach and improving there, which always impresses me because plate approach 
isn't the sexy thing. It's not the fun thing. You want to hit home runs when you're a top prospect, and if you strike out the other three at-bats, whatever. He has put in the work to improve those other at-bats. His power will always be there. His power is ridiculous. Watching him take batting practice and spring training these last few years is a treat. It is incredible MLB ready-to-slug power. But it's about everything in between. Lots of guys can hit home runs. It's about what you do in between. And we're starting to see that from a relevance now. This gets really interesting because Matt Chapman's a free agent next year. I know people don't like to be reminded that, but he is. Mm. So between Arelvis and Addison Barger down in AAA, very interested to see how those third base reps are split up over the next few weeks going into the end of the season. And I think that's the most interesting spot on this roster next year going in. It's been a while since we've seen a spot like this where it could be a resigning, could be a trade, could be a top prospect. This is a, a real fork in the road, and Arelvis has earned his way into that conversation because a few months ago it looked like he was nowhere close. So full credit to him. And it, it is, you're right. It's fascinating to see not only what the, the box score produces, but how they're using these guys defensively because Arelvis and Barger are both guys they've tried to keep at least semi frequent starts at, at shortstop in the mix. Um, yesterday, Barger was the shortstop, Martinez at third base. Otto Lopez actually DH'd and Davis Schneider bumped to the outfield. So clearly using those AAA reps to, to build some versatility there as well, where because, hey, in addition to the Matt Chapman gap, Whit Merrifield, Kevin Kiermeyer, Brandon Belt, all of those guys are potential free agents as well. So a, a couple ways that could shake out if those guys aren't dealt at the deadline uh, to address the pitching need or, or help the major league roster. Keegan Matheson, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I appreciate it. You got it, my friend. We'll talk soon. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com. Uh, great write-up and perspective on the Manoa start last night. Um, one of the, you know, it's, uh, it's tough to you know, be in the room before or after a game and hear John Schneider say those things or hear Alec Manoa say those things and take those quotes into account, but still, you know, be honest about what this looks like. And, you know, it's kind of, it's been a lot to hear that with regularity, the the performance isn't as bad as the stat line, but the stat lines are what they are. And within that, I mean, I come back to the slider and the inability to, to locate it or, or get swing and miss with it. And, and it's tough. It's uh, it's maybe not as long a road back at this point, um, given we've already done the long part of the road, but it's a road back uh, to, I think Alec Manoa trusting his stuff to staying in the zone regularly to building off of that with swing and miss stuff. It's a, uh, it's a ways back enough that the Jays probably have to be making some calls these next couple of weeks, just in case uh, we're going to take a break and then we're going to make a call. We're going to bring in Ryan Dempster of off the mound off intentional talk. Uh, we're going to kick around a lot of stuff, including he did a little karaoke on the, on the broadcast yesterday, impromptu. Uh, maybe he'll, uh, he'll give us a bar to Ryan Dempster joins us next as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports at radio network and sports at three Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. 
uh, I was trying to play our next guest in with a song, but maybe we'll just ask him to sing it himself since he did it recently. Uh, we're joined now by uh, Of Off The Mound, Of Intentional Talk. It's Ryan Dempster. Ryan, you gave us a terrific Gwen Stefani, no doubt, don't speak yesterday. Has that always been a karaoke regular for you, or is that just <laughs> off the cuff? Uh, off the cuff a little bit. It was a little, shortly before the show started, I just had an idea that Gwen Stefani was in the stands. Maybe she would be singing that song to show, hey, don't leave, you know? It's uh, it'll, only, it'll only hurt. <laughs> it will, and it's got to be tough for Angels fans. Are, are you, I mean, I know you're not LA-based, but we're starting to see, I feel like, the Otani, like, celebs want to be, like, it's not quite Lakers level, but we might be getting to, like, Clippers level of people want to make sure they see Otani while he's still in L.A. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we've kind of taken for granted what he's been doing um, and just, like, you know, in awe, but like, oh, yeah, like, it's it's not that big of a deal. For, for people who, uh, you know, haven't played this game at the highest level, to play one position and be focused and locked in and be dominant at, at that is very, very a tough task to, to do. You know, you've got a lot of preparation, a lot of different work that goes in, whether that's in the training room, weight room, video room, whatever you're doing. And then to do that at, at two levels is so elite and so ridiculous. It's never been done like this before. Nobody in the history of the game is doing what he's doing, not even Babe Ruth. So, um, yeah, I think I think people are starting to realize. I think, you know, as he gets talked about more with possible trades and all these different things, and why not? I mean, if you have a chance to go to that ballpark, which is beautiful, and watch Shohei Otani play, uh, how can you turn that down? Yeah, seriously. And, you know, we, we obviously there's, you know, reporting that, hey, people expect the Dodgers to be firmly in the mix if he's a free agent next year. But you got to watch him. Like he's he's coming here, uh, not this coming weekend, but next weekend. They're here in Toronto. And that's the hottest ticket uh, of the summer, basically. Um, you know, usually here in Toronto, it's hey, Jay, uh, the Yankees series, the Red Sox series, things like that. But it's it's all Shohei here. Um, when you when you mention, you know, we're, we're going to be hearing about Shohei and potential trade deadline stuff here the Angels sitting four and a half back of a playoff spot. How do you feel about that? Obviously, we have to cover it as baseball media, and it would be a fascinating thing for him to actually be on the trade market. But with the Angels, you know, only a couple games out, and that, you know, that that fan base obviously wanting to to keep him and get to experience the playoffs with him. How do you feel about the best player in baseball, a big talking point around his play being, hey, where could he go two weeks from now? Yeah, uh, you know, like, honestly, I don't see him getting traded. I just don't see it happening. I know it's going to be talked about to the, honestly, to exhaustion and to the amount of, spe- I just can't wait till like the trading deadline comes up and all of the, uh, the frontline reporters, you know, that are out there, my guys, John Heyman and Joel Sherman and Jeff Passan with all the possibility speculation tweets is going to be next level. Um, it's going to be like, I think it's going to be like a, you know, all talk, no action. Why, why would you trade him? If you, if you, unless you publicly come out and say, we have no intentions of trying to re-sign Shohei Otani, there's, there's been what? I mean, how many, how many guys can we count on our hand? Five maybe in the history of the game that have got traded and then signed back as a big free agent with their team? That just doesn't happen. You know, it's like, it's like you're engaged to your fiancé and right before the wedding, like two months before, you're like, hey, I got an idea. I was thinking maybe we could each try to just try and date some other people before the <laughs> wedding and see how that goes. Yeah. You know, like as soon as you start doing that, you're opening the door to just like possibilities of seeing other. I just don't see it happening. This is an iconic player that you want to keep in your uniform 
You're not going to trade him to somebody for a couple months. So there'll be a ton of smoke and no fire. Is going to be all this talk because they're in it. Like you said, they get hot. They have a good, you know, August uh, and then into September. Mike Trout comes back. You're not giving up on this team, you know, even though they're not necessarily at the top of their division, they're not that far out of a wild card and they can get on a run. Yeah, I mean, it, they, they've got to get a, a little healthy and, and get some bounces going their way. But, I mean, they have the best player in baseball, maybe on, <laughs> the best hitter in baseball, period. And then, oh, he also throws every fifth day. Uh, if anyone could help turn a team around, I'm, I'm sure it's Shohei. Uh, Ryan, I'm curious what your own experience has been like this time of year as a player. I know you got dealt in season a couple times. You are a part of some teams that, uh, you know, acquired pieces as buyers. What is it like in a room and, and you know, individually these next couple weeks? weeks as even if your name's not in the rumors i'd imagine there's a sense of you know unrest in in some of these clubhouses yeah i think two different you know kind of perspectives the first time i i didn't want to get traded i was coming up the marlins um and those were my guys you know the mike lowell's kevin millar's cliff floyd's like we were all boys together like we all came up and 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 now all of a sudden i'm getting traded to cincinnati which was exciting and in, in a sense of, hey, you know, you got a chance to go to the playoffs and going to a great team and stuff like that. But it just, it, it broke my heart a little. It made me cry, you know, it was guys that I kind of, we stunk for a long time and we were just starting to become, you know, players in the game. And next thing you know, I'm gone. So that was, that was a little, little hurt, hurtful. But the second time, you know, I wanted to be a Cub for the rest of my life, but I also understood the business process. As I got a little bit older, I understood what they were trying to do. So, and I had that 10 five veto rights where I could veto any trade. That was a lot of fun to have control of your destination. And then when Texas came up, um, they were leading the division and a chance for me to know I was going to, to a contender, a serious contender. So, um, you know, it, it can have all kinds of range of emotions. And there's guys who just, you know, sometimes, you know, there's going to be guys who, who get hurt because they're on contenders and those contenders are going to make trades for players. Um, and, and somebody's going to go to a team that they don't necessarily want to go to. And, and, you know, it's tough. And, um, there's, there's all these wide range of emotions, you know, uh, we, we sign with a team, we're there, we come up with a team and we think we're going to be there forever. And, and, and you can end up in another uniform. So yeah, it's definitely a, an emotional filled charge day. Um, and for some guys, an opportunity, right? Maybe I get to go to a contender and, and have a chance to go win a World Series somewhere. So the spectrum is really big as far as what you might feel. It could be sadness, could be excitement. Um, you know, you, you bond a lot. So, yeah, trading deadlines are always exciting, but I always feel for the player because, you know, yeah, we love the game, and it's that's what it's all about well, since we've been a little kid. But there's this business aspect that comes into play sometimes that can, can hurt a little bit. Yeah, that that part I imagine is difficult. And one, just a one follow up on that, I'm curious about. You know, I know you were part of some very good Cubs teams that were playoff bound. Of course, your final year, the the World Series team with the Red Sox. When you're on a team that's good at this time of year, how? I mean, I I, I guess I can't ask you for all of the the players, but for you personally. Is there a feeling of, hey, we're really, we're really good. You should add to this team. We believe, like, believe in us, add to this, see what else we can can add and how far we can go. Or is it more an element of, hey, we're doing this as a group in here, believe in us, and, you know, the, the 26 guys, 25 at that time in that room uh, can get it done. H- how did you feel about, you know, possible additions where they could make the team a little better, but the, the guy next to you who's gotten you to that point could be out the door down to the minors? Yeah, you know, like, it's funny you say that. Like, I, I, I dropped from, like, say, the 2013 team. Um, 
we we had three players come over that kind of were what we we felt like we needed and and it was we needed some speed for that pinch run because listen man we've seen it right Dave Roberts doing it in, in game four against the Yankees you got to have a fast player on your team that can score some runs if you look at teams along the way that have done that they've always had that little guy somebody who can steal a base when you need it because runs get harder and harder as you get closer and closer so we got Quentin Berry in a minor league trade and then he came up from the minor leagues super small and we were like oh you know like not a big name not this big impactful trade but to us it, it was big and then we got Jake Peavy and Matt Thornton um, from the White Sox and we needed a left-handed reliever um, we lost Andrew Miller who went down um, we were kind of looking for that and Matt Thornton was dominating at that time and then Jake Peavy was was dealing in in uh, in Chicago so but it was like it's it was like yep yeah, we got it now that's all we need and we were already feeling, you know, kind of invincible a little, and that just put us over the edge. And I've been in those locker rooms. When you're going well, give us, give us more better players. Like, we want, we want more good players. That's just how it goes. And because you know you're so close. And not only do you want them, you don't want the other teams to get them. That was the Cubs in 2016. Like, they acquired Raldis Chapman. And when we did that, hey, man, that not only do we have this guy, nobody else does. You don't have to hit off that guy. So, yeah, it has a big impact in the locker room. When you've put yourself in this position, come, you know, with two months left to go in the season, you get to a trading deadline, and it's like, hey, come on now. We've done our part. You in the front office do your part. And so when it happens, it can energize an already energized locker room. It can lift a team that might be so-so. It can lift them up. And so it can be really impactful when you make the right trade. Man, the Quentin, the Quentin Barry mention is like, it's fascinating because he, obviously he was on that playoff roster every series. And I think he stole a base in every series for you guys. It's uh, it's it's wild how a guy who maybe doesn't have a role day to day during the regular season can be so important uh, come playoff time. We saw it here uh, a couple years ago with Dalton Pompey uh, as well. Um, I, w- I want to pivot to the Blue Jays now, Ryan. Um, I, I don't know if you got a chance to watch the game last night, but you certainly saw the stat line. Alec Manoa having another tough one against a San Diego Padres team that we all know should be better than, than they have been so far. Um, when you see that coming off of the good start Manoa had in his first start back, what do you make of where Manoa is right now? And where's your concern level uh, about, you know, a, a start like last night, kind of setting him back a little bit in that progression? Yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I hope that the, you know, keep working, keep grinding. Um, you know, I know the stuff is down a tick from last year, um, velocity wise, uh, the, the breaking ball concerns me a little bit just because, um, I've been there when it's spinning and not biting, you know, even that game against the tigers, there was, you know, some strike threes that were taken by the tiger hitters that were breaking balls that were in the middle of the zone kind of thing. Um, but that being said, that's a positive outing last night. Not, not as greatest, you know, five walks, no strikeouts concerns me a little bit. It tells me that stuff's a little short, but continue to grind, continue to get better, figure out ways to, to, you know, get that velocity back a little bit, which you can do during the season. You just got to continue to work hard um, and find, find the positives. Um, you know, listen, that outing yesterday could have changed. That ball gets lost in the lights by George Springer. And, and if he catches that ball, maybe it's only two runs. You know, that's the kind of stuff that happens when you're going bad, when you're going good, everything gets made for you. That's just a reality. And then you start to have more confidence and then you make better pitches and it's the vice versa, right? When things go bad, it's like, Oh, we don't catch that ball. Now it's three, one and a runner on second. And now it's four, one. And you know, it just has this trickle down effect. So I want nothing more than this kid to throw. Well, um, I like him a lot. 
I know he's had a rough go of it, and and it, so now you just got to go out there, figure out uh, what wasn't working last time out, and go out there, be crisp in your bullpen sessions, and I, I think he can get it back. Um, but also at the same time, the Blue Jays can't rely on that. You can't be like, well, when he gets it back, we're going to be solid in rotation. You got to look for help. You got to look to add. Um, because they got a roster that can score a ton of runs, and and guys out there who are now experienced, young players that are experienced that can that can win some ball games. And if they add a little bit at the break, there's no reason why they can't be contenders. Yeah, I know you've been optimistic about their chances on intentional talk. Uh, the team that that jumped on Manoa last night, the Padres, they they end up with nine in that game. Um, you know, some of that a little garbage time off the mop up part of the bullpen, but. They showed, I mean, I think you called them puzzling the other day. And you look, and it's a middle-of-the-order that has Tatis, Soto, Machado, Bogarts, and they're not winning a lot of games. Um, You mentioned, you know, with Manoa, sometimes an outing goes that way, and it bounces off third base, or Springer doesn't make the play, and it kind of builds like that. How... Like, would it surprise you at all if a game like yesterday and the Padres suddenly stumble on a run here where they look every bit as good as they look on paper? Like, they're far out, but it doesn't, like, more so than than the Mets or or other teams like that, it does feel like, to me, the Padres could find that gear. Is that part of why you find them so puzzling, that that they're not that far off from, from clicking? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I look at when you look at their roster and compiled. You mentioned their their lineup, but look at their rotation. Blake Smell, Snell, and Joe Musgrove has been dealing his last I think nine or ten starts. And you Darvish, it's been a little bit of enigma this year. He hasn't been as sharp as he wanted. Um, and then after that, it's kind of been patchwork putting it together. So, um, and then bullpen wise, has really struggled, right? Like so, this is what's happened with the Padres: don't score, um, and then they pitch well. They don't pitch well. They score a ton of runs, but not enough. They get a lead. The bullpen's been giving it up in July. It's like every month one thing has not been firing, and then that leads to what you're exactly what you're seeing as a team underachieving. Um, it's not like, oh, it's been the pitching this year. Offense, we've been scorching the ball. No, it's too, offense was good for a while. Then, so you have all these ups and downs, and then when you're not holding leads, and they are, I, I honestly, like, you start to run out of time, man. Like, you're just running out of time. you got three teams ahead of you in the division. you got more teams than that ahead of you in the wild card. So, you know, it's just one of those situations where, like, great on paper. I always said that, like, you know, cool on paper. What does that matter? Everybody starts the same. They're all O and O to start the season. You can have all these superstars and three hundred, two hundred million dollar contracts and whatever it is. That guarantees you nothing. You got to go out and you got to execute. You got to out execute the other team. You got to find ways to win ball games one to nothing. You got to find ways to hold leads. Like, it doesn't just because you slap a bunch of money and throw it at players who who put up numbers across the board, that's great. But, you know, it's about winning at this level. And and I, I guarantee a lot of those guys in there, if you have Xander Bogarts, a guy who's been used to winning multiple World Series winner in Boston, hey, man, I, I'd trade a you know a couple of these millions for a few more wins. And, and that's the reality, right? Winning is a lot more fun than than a little bit extra in your bank account. And uh, and especially when you're talking those kind of numbers. So, yeah, and it, kind of a, a, a weird team, an enigma of a team. I don't understand what's, what's going on there. And I, I really don't think that it's going to turn around just because of what's in front of them. And, and, you know, they're going to have to play 700 baseball down the stretch. And for a team that's playing sub 500 baseball, how many teams do that in, in, in the last couple months of the season? Not many. Not many, and it's it's funny, you know, the Padres look at how they do, um, and on paper, you mentioned the, the expectations were where they were, and they're supposed to be this level of team, and then you look at a Cubs team that I think we all understood would, probably wouldn't be uh, awesome this year, and maybe our sellers at the deadline here, and they are 
just as close to a playoff spot. Now, some of that is just the NL Central being the NL Central, but it really doesn't feel like the Padres and Cubs occupy the same kind of territory. Uh, Before I let you go, Ryan, I wanted to ask you about the Cubs. If they are sellers this next little bit, do you have a a spot you'd like to see a guy like Marcus Stroman land? We've seen him pitch in the playoffs here before. He's such a gamer and he's so much fun to watch. Is is he a guy you'd like to see a, a sure thing playoff team make a play for in these next couple of weeks? Yeah, well, I think if you're a sure thing playoff team and you're looking for starting pitching that can, you know, A, help you down the stretch, secure that playoff, but then win some playoff games for you. He loves that stage, man. I've watched it. He loves the bigger, bigger kind of the rivalry or the moment. He really he really lives for it. And he's been successful in Toronto before. It's a city that I know personally that he loves. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I'm, but I'm sure that that'll be a, uh, one of many teams that are going to want him. And then it's where's the best package and, and things like that. And, um, you know, ho- hopefully for the Cubs, that's not the case, right? Like, let's get on a roll here. And like you said, the division isn't as far out as you think. If you can get hot um, and get things clicking, every, you know, they need Jamison Tyon to keep it going. But, yeah, Marcus Stroman will, will fit in and, and give any team. I mean, he's been really, really good this year, and he'll give – any team a chance to win some ball games. Uh, sorry, I lied. I got one more quick one for you. I know you were out at yeah, all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I know you were out at All Star. I, I know recently on the the respect on, on the name, you, you shouted out Josh Naylor, who's almost hitting 400 since the end of May. How cool was it, you as a as a Canadian baseball player, uh, and to be around? And we hear, hey, the third Naylor brother gets drafted as a big. I know the draft and All Star don't occupy the exact same space, but as we're doing all this, as you're talking to Jordan Romano about his chase up the Canadian saves leaderboard, Hey, there's a third nailer brother to add to this story as well. Um, the, the nailer trio there, how much funds that been for you, especially as a, as a guy who's been high on Josh and Bo nailer. Yeah. Well, I'm just such a fan of Josh. I'm just such a great kid and the way he plays the game and he's having fun and he rakes, you know, he absolutely <laughs> rakes. Um, and, and I was bummed that, you know, he, he should have got that, that opportunity to be up because of what his numbers said alone. And then, um, and then just to watch it all at well, right. Watch Bo come up and then they're, they're, they're in the big leagues together. Like I got a chance to play a few slow pitch softball games with my brothers, you know, and they, they were high school baseball players and they played my, my youngest brother played college baseball. Like I, to, to think about that, to be in the big leagues, the highest level with your brother. And then you guys are sitting there one day in the clubhouse and your brother gets drafted. Like, <laughs> like that is just so cool. Um, you know, for, for mom and dad, for the family and for our country, for Canada to see these kids um, do what they've done. And, and, you know, two of them in the big leagues already, hopefully a third one there in, in a few years. And it's just special. It's, it, those are things that, that, you know, as the game ends, they keep playing, right? The game doesn't stop for us. And then we have a chance to reflect. And one day they're going to sit back and just have these moments where they reflect on hitting a home run in the same game together or, you know, sharing bus rides together or hopefully for them winning a World Series together. Like these kind of moments, not very many people get, not even some really, really great ball players who brothers play across the league to be able to play together in the big leagues. So special. Couldn't be prouder of both of them and look forward to number their third brother getting up there as well. 2026 World Baseball Classic. Let's go. Three nailers in the order. Mm-hmm. It could be a lot of fun. Ryan Dempster, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. I appreciate it. You got it. Absolutely. Right. Ryan Dempster of Off the Mound, of Intentional Talk on MLB Network. Uh, a guy who, hey, if you're immaculate gritting, you can you can slide him in a few spots. We just talked about him uh, you know, getting dealt a couple times at the deadline, being a part of some some pretty fun teams, including couple Cubs playoff teams. 
unfortunately a Red Sox World Series champion team. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dan Schulman. We're going to talk to John Morosi. We've got Sweeney Murdy uh, a little later in the show as well. Uh, loaded second hour here as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Loaded second hour here as we sort through the Manoa of it all and look ahead uh, to the trade deadline to joining us now. The voice of your Toronto Blue Jays on Sportsnet, Dan Schulman. Dan, how are you? I'm well, Blake. Good morning. How you doing? Good. I'm. Uh, I mean, I would have been better if that game were a, a little better. But uh, you know, this is uh, this is the job. They lose nine one, and we're <laughs> we're back to having some of the same conversations we've had about Alec Manoa earlier in the year. Before we get into some of the specifics, high level, um, where are where are you coming out of that Manoa performance yesterday? Well, I think if it were April 19th, it's different than if it's July 19th. And, and like you said, uh, kind of back to having the same conversation because there were a few like this in the, in the first couple of months. Um, unfortunately for Manoa, I mean, I, I think he's going to go out there again Sunday in Seattle. Uh, unless something changes, I'd be surprised if it changes by then. But you know, the trade deadline is a thing, and you can't ignore the fact that it's a thing. It's 13 days away, and I think they've got to know what they have because – they're a contending team in a race that looks like, you know, they're they're in a pretty good spot, but they're certainly not assured of being a playoff team, but also looks good enough that if they get in, they could do a lot of damage once they get in. So I think, you know, it's incumbent upon the organization to to gather as much information as they can in advance of the deadline. So they'll get some more on Sunday in Seattle, I believe. But um, yeah, it, it is a concern. You know, you can talk about he got he got squeezed and then Soto homered and the ball off third base. That was a double instead of an out. And and th- that, those things are true. They happened. Uh, but also, you know, he did walk five and he didn't strike out anybody. And uh, he didn't look he didn't look very sharp. And, and I don't think anybody's expecting 2022 Alec Manoa. You're just hoping a guy who can, you know, maybe go five innings and give up two or three runs and keep you in the game and, you know, show his competitive side and battle through that. But um, this was a, a step back, I, I think, from the start against the Tigers. Obviously, the Padres are a much better offensive team. That's part of it as well. But um, it, it's certainly got to be something that's being discussed by the front office, again, because of what's at stake over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's it's certainly a little different when you get squeezed like that and the next, you know, the batter you're facing and have to throw an extra pitch to is Juan Soto versus if it's, you know, I don't know, Zach McKinstry. It's a, it's a little different there, but like you said, the it's, you know, it's, it's a results business, right? I, I'm curious how you feel about, you know, and, and John Schneider's hands are tied a little bit in terms of exactly what he's going to say post game. But when you, we hear things like, um, you know, I don't think it was a step backwards or the stat line was worse than, than it actually was. I mean, we watched that pitch for pitch. It felt pretty bad as it was happening, even with the, the caveats of the squeeze on a third strike here and there, or a ball ricocheting off of third base. Um, again, acknowledging that Schneider has to say 
some positive things along those lines. Um, there, there does to me feel like a, a little bit of a disconnect between what we're seeing and, and especially when it comes to, you know, the effectiveness of that slider to, to get guys out and what the talking points have been from the team. Do you feel similarly or is this just, am I just kind of underestimating the, Hey, John Schneider's got to say this stuff. Uh, I would vote for that, to yeah. be honest with you. And, and the reason I would vote for that, like you could have a player who's struggling, but they're, you know, there's no hint of a confidence issue. And then you might say, so, you know, Blake Murphy's got to do better. He's just got to do better. We need more from him. Alec Manoa, um, obviously, you know, you could see it in his interviews after his last two or three starts before he got sent down. And then, you know, getting all the way, sent all the way down to the complex league. This is not just a physical or mechanical thing. Um, you can see that his confidence is not quite, uh, maybe take the word quite out, is not where it was over the last two and a half years as we all grew uh, to know Alec Manoa. So if you know a guy has confidence issues, you're not tearing him down in public. You're just not. And I, I think they realize the best chance they have of him being good this year is to build him back up. Now, uh, what the conversations are like internally, like after the game, the does Pete Walker come into the office? Does Ross Atkins come into the office? Do they sit down and, and look at the schedule? You, you know, you, you see it up on the wall right beside Schneider's locker as they talk about the next two, three weeks. I'm sure the tone of the conversation is a little bit different. But in, um, in public, I wouldn't expect to hear much of that. Um, I, I think they know that um, they, they've got to try to put them back together again physically and, and emotionally uh, as best they can. But I don't think that means they're going to keep running them out there for two and a half months if the results don't improve. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. And you saying Blake Murphy's got to do better like that. I'm sure back behind the glass right now, they're clipping that so they can just use it as a drop. So thanks a lot for that. Dan. Love that. Love that. Um, but yeah, so last night, you know, that's a that's a career low in terms of the, the slider break. It's a career low in terms of how many called and swinging strikes he generated overall. So it is, you know, there was there was also I think everything but the fastball. If a guy swung in the zone, they made contact with it. So to me, it, that it was a, a step backward. I think we can all agree on that. Um, in terms of that confidence for Manoa or our confidence in him, John Schneider and Ross Atkins confidence in him. When you look at, Hey, what he did in the double a outing and what he did in Detroit and then what happened in San Diego. I mean, obviously we're not going to be confident in Alec Manoa long-term by the trade deadline, but let's play out a scenario where they don't add starting pitching and Manoa's in the rotation for a little bit. How, what do you think the path is back to him trusting his stuff, us trusting his stuff, the team trusting him every fifth day? Like, like how long of a path back is that even in a scenario where things are going pretty well? I mean, it has to start with being in the strike zone. Mm -hmm. Nothing works if he's not in the strike zone more consistently. And he was in the strike zone more consistently against Detroit. But again, Detroit's one of the two or three worst offensive teams in baseball. And I'm not saying he didn't make some good pitches. He did. But by his own admission and by, I think, the eye test, and I had Joe Siddle sitting beside me, very experienced guy, walk, watching the game, talking about the game, there were some that he might not have gotten away with if it wasn't Detroit. It's got to start with him being in the strike zone, and then it's got to start with either you know, soft contact or swings and misses. That, that's it. And you know, there were some games earlier in the year where he was in the strike zone a lot, but he was getting hit. And there were some games where he wasn't in the strike zone enough, but he was walking guys. And I, again, I don't want to, it, it would be reckless of me to try to get inside Alec Manoa's head and say, this is what he's thinking right now. But I would imagine for, for any pitcher, 
Um, if when you're in the strike zone, you're getting hit, you might try to be on the edge or off the edge or a little further off the edge, you know, and you start trying to aim it or place it or make perfect pitches and, you know, three inches this way, three inches that way can make a world of difference between a good pitch and a bad pitch. So um, I think the path back starts with consistency in the strike zone and then you see what the results are. But I have no idea if, if that's possible this year. Again, we don't know what it is. Like things like the velocities down a little bit, the horizontal break on the slider, the command, the location. To me, these are symptoms. We don't know what the cause is. Like what caused all this? And the Blue Jays aren't saying, and that's their prerogative. We, we are not entitled to know, necessarily entitled to know everything that's going on. But I wonder if it's fixable in a season or if they need a full winter to kind of really tear it down and, and build it back up. Uh, he came back a little bit quicker than I thought. But again, maybe part of it was Tigers. Maybe part of it was they got to know what they have before the trade deadline. And both of those are defensible positions, I think. They really are in terms of bringing them back quickly. But now, you know, the clock is ticking. And I hope he goes out there in Seattle Sunday, assuming he starts and uh, and and does well. But, you know, all of a sudden, Hyunjin Ryu, that's timely and important. And, um, you know, who knows what Bowden Fran- where Bowden Francis is right now. And is it incumbent upon them to go out and get a guy – and I'll use raw, I don't mean raw stripling, but you know what I mean, yes. like a hybrid guy, a raw stripling type of guy to have that. Like Mitch White is was supposed to be that guy, but are they? Is it incumbent upon them to go out and get somebody? Because what if Gosman's side thing turns into a little more serious, or what if Barrios gets hit by a comebacker or something? They're too good to have the whole thing crumble on this one thing. So. I think they almost kind of have to go out and get somebody. Um, even if everything goes well, that means that guy may not have that big of a role, but you need a bit of an insurance policy, I think. Yeah, and look, come playoff time, assuming you get there, you have to get there. That's part of why we're talking about addressing a, a fifth starter spot. But if you target a guy who has a bit of that hybrid to him, then suddenly it helps your bullpen in a, in a playoff scenario, whether that's you know a guy who's been a starter like Michael Lorenzen for the most part. Jordan Hicks from the Cardinals was a starter as recently as last year. I, I know he hasn't had the best of seasons, but those guys are out there. They, they exist. Um, Dan, I know when we talk about roster crunches and rotation setups and things like that, you're fond of saying these things have a way of working themselves out. (laughs) Now, we'd all prefer if they work themselves out in positive fashion and the problems you have end up being good ones, um, not ones like this. But, you know, the Manoa thing could at least in in the short term be helped by the fact that Hyunjin Ryu is nearing a return. I know a part of your job is analyzing the game, but a big part of your job is also the storyteller side of things. How excited are you for Hyunjin Ryu to potentially rejoin this team in a story that we didn't know if it would happen this year? Yeah, I am because I loved watching him pitch his first couple of years with the Blue Jays, especially that first year in 2020. He's just so different than most other pitchers, right? It's a power game. now. It's, it's a power sport. And he obviously is a finesse guy. Um, and, and, you know, cut her in, change up away, flip a curveball in, another change up, four seamer up. I mean, it's different. And, and um, you know, not to use the chess checkers analogy, but you know what I mean? He's really fun. It's fun to, to try to think with him, to have a catcher, whether it's Buck or Joe sitting beside me, um, you know, talking about what he's doing out there. Um, the good news, I guess, is when they signed him, he was their number one. And even going into last year, he was a very important guy. They don't need him to be a one, two, or necessarily even a three right now. Like, it's great if he does, but they just need a guy to come back. And again, I I always say the same thing, five or six innings, two or three runs, right? Like, just give them a chance. 
Um, don't burn the bullpen uh, and give the offense a chance to scratch out a couple of runs late and win the game. So I'm hopeful that he's got enough velocity uh, and he can compete. He looks great. I don't know if you walked by him yesterday down at the ballpark. He was down there. I mean, he's lost 30, 40 pounds, and John Schneider's gone out of his way a couple of times without anybody asking about that to say, he looks great, he's lost 30 or 40 pounds. He's a free agent at the end of the year. He obviously wants to prove that he's still got something left and get another contract and keep pitching. So this is a motivated, experienced, uh, determined, intelligent, successful guy who hopefully can give the Blue Jays two months, two really good months uh, of keeping them in game. So I am excited about it. Um, I think if his next, his last one was 66 pitches, if his next one is 80 or 85, um, it's possible he comes back. And John, you were in the room. John Schneider didn't run away from that yesterday when he was asked about that. I, I think it's possible that Ryu pitches in that um, the Angels series or the Orioles series, like on the next homestand. I don't think they're starting him at Dodger Stadium. Like that doesn't make any sense in the world to me. But um, maybe they will. Who knows? But I, I think it's very possible that he pitches one of the games in the angel series, which coincides with 17 games in 17 days. Um, and as you know, there was a lot of talk about a six man rotation mm -hmm. that depends on Manoa's effectiveness as well, but maybe you roll a six man rotation just once or twice through the beginning of that 17 and 17 stretch. Like you could go six, six, five, right? You, you do a six man twice. And then at the end of that, you've got a lot more information and you say, okay, these are our five and somebody else goes to the bullpen or whatever the case may be. This could go a dozen different ways. It's fun, fun, fun to talk about, but ultimately we don't have nearly as much information as they have on the inside, and the information is still being compiled. What Ryu does Friday matters. What Kikuchi does his next time out matters. What Manoa does his next time out matters. Uh, what the trade demands are for a guy like Michael Lorenzen or whomever matters. So this could go a dozen different ways. I'm a little concerned about the six man rotation idea just because of the toll on an already heavily worked back end of the bullpen. You shorten your bullpen yep. to seven guys for, for a couple yep. of weeks there. But as you always say, these things could work themselves out. You have an IL here and there, whatever, um, or, or another uh, addition comes through that door. Uh, and, and suddenly you've got a little more length back there. Uh, Dan, before I let you go, have to ask you uh, if if anyone last week was watching these Sportsnet broadcasts of Global Jam between two games, they would have seen you as a part of the announcement of the training camp roster for the Canadian men's team who will be in the World Cup later this summer. Uh, it starts August 25th. They're in Indonesia for the first part of theirs. Seeing that roster on paper, you and I have talked a lot over the last year or two about what that could look like. How excited are you to see the names actually on that roster headed to camp later this month for Team Canada? Very, very, very. Capital V on all three. Very excited. Uh, the three guys, and you and I have texted about this a little bit, uh, first of all, I think Canada basketball did a great thing. They, they announced a core 14 last year. 13 of those 14 are on the roster. The only one who's not is Ken Birch, who's got an injury. And then they picked five guys who were instrumental in the winter core in, in all of the qualifying games for helping Canada uh, do as well as they did and go 11 and one. Um, they did exactly what they said they were going to do. And in hindsight, it's like, Oh, this is this, this exactly makes sense. This is the perfect group that they, they could have picked. Um, I wasn't sure about Brooks. I wasn't sure about Murray, obviously. Uh, Jordy Fernandez, I would imagine, helps. But we all wondered about Murray because he played into the middle of June. So uh, wonderful to get Jamal Murray. 
I was hoping Trey Lyles would be on the team. That's the one where I said, boy, I think, you know, he's, he could have really helped because they've got some very good players up front, but they don't have, uh, obviously their depth is in the backcourt. You just have to look at the roster and you, you can see that, but this is by far the best roster I'm aware of that they've ever had, like not even close. And it's not just that they have 10 NBA players, but they have 10 NBA players. And, and then, you know, with the scrub brothers and, and Edgem and Pangos and, and Cassius Robertson, like they've got guys who have been around the globe time and time and time again, and no FIBA basketball inside out. And, uh, and I think they're going to round out their roster with two or three of those guys. So I think it's wonderful. And for anybody who is still a little skeptical, and I'm sure you did exactly the same thing. This is not just, we've agreed to show up at camp. These 18 are playing. They have said, if I make the team, I am playing. So, um, that's wonderful. I can only imagine what the practices and training camp and the cuts are, are going to be like. It's going to be hard. But um, as you know even better than me, this is their time. They've got to do it now. If they, if, if they qualify for the Olympics, they get nine months of unbelievable hype and momentum heading into Paris. If they don't, unfortunately, they get eight months of anxiety heading into a last-chance tournament in June somewhere uh, to be determined uh, around the globe. So this, this is their shot. They got to, they got to go out and win games and, and find a way to be one of the two best America's teams of the world. Cup. I, I can't do the last chance. I mean, I, I will do it again if it, if it happens that way, but I mentally, I'm not ready for another last chance tournament, uh, Dan. And for anyone, um, who wants to follow along with that, we will have this, the World Cup games here on Sportsnet. Um, there are a load of exhibition games Canada basketball has put on the slate in the time leading up to that as well. So hopefully they'll be able to hit that tournament, uh, hit it running and not have to do, you know, the last Olympic qualifier, last chance tournament we did because of pandemic issues, there was no tune up game. And then suddenly you lose one game and everything looks different. So things are lining up uh, a little better this time around. Dan Schulman, thanks for taking the time out, man. I really appreciate it. You got it, Blake. Anytime. Dan Schulman of Sportsnet, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, again, we won't do too much basketball talk here, but that camp opens July 3rd or players report July 31st and then camp opens August 1st, they'll do a couple games in Germany, a couple games in Spain, then head to Indonesia about a week ahead of the World Cup so they can start adjusting to the time differences there from first from Canada to, to Germany and Spain and then to Indonesia. Uh, and that tournament gets underway August 25th. We'll have the games for you here on Sportsnet. More international uh, sports talk. We can be joined by John Morosi of MLB Network right now, who had a piece at MLB.com this week about the introduction of a, of a baseball champions league. John Morosi, how you doing? And fill us in on this baseball champions league. Sure. Blake, uh, good morning from, from Anaheim. We're here today. Very excited about the Yankees and angels. Uh, we've got them on MLB network this evening. So uh, what will Shohei do this evening? Hmm. So I'll be able to uh, re report firsthand on what we see from Shohei tonight. So far, actually the angels have won the first two games of the series. So maybe they're not going to trade him if they keep playing this well, but uh, yes, as you point out, it's, it's the first ever version of the, the baseball champions league. It's what it's called. Um, it's, it's 
promoted and organized by the World Baseball Softball Confederation, so the international governing body. Um, so it's somewhat similar. The way I've described it as it's like the Caribbean series, but, but worldwide. And it's unique. It's going to be hosted by Los Leones de Yucatan, which is a, a Mexican league team. It's based in Merida, uh, there on the Yucatan Peninsula. And it's a four-team tournament. They're going to be joined by the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks, uh, which is an American association club. That, that's an MLB partner league. So you'll have uh, so Los Leones de Yucatan will, will represent the, the Mexican Summer League. You'll have the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks. And then Los Alzanes de Granma, one of the, the, the champion of the, the Cuban Serie Nacional, and then Los Caimanes de Barranquilla in Colombia. So you'll have four, four league champions, one of the American Association, one of the Mexican Summer League, Cuba, Colombia, and we'll see how, how the tournament grows in the future. I mean, there are still some regional European um, tournaments that, that happen among the, the champions of the various leagues there. So maybe, maybe the tournament's going to grow in the future, Blake. Yeah, I hope so. And we're seeing things like, you know, Baseball United try, try to get launched in, in India and South Asia. Always great to, to see the game expanding uh, globally. Uh, of course, in the Latin American countries, already a very popular game, but more marquee events like this. Uh, and John, always love hearing about your passion for the international side of baseball. Uh, you are in L.A. And yes, I'm bearing the lead a little bit. You're down there. Shohei is is doing Shohei things. Um, and it's a pretty big series for, uh, as you as you alluded to, the Angels and whether they could be buyers or sellers over these next two weeks. They're currently four and a half out of a wild card spot. Yankees have dropped three in a row. They're now two and a half out of a wild card spot. Um, what is the, the current sense you have with those teams and their willingness? You know, I, I think... The Angels, obviously, everything flows from Shohei. The Yankees, though, I, I wonder if, you know, this recent skid and how tight the wild card race is, if they maybe just aren't that eager to buy because they, they feel kind of far away. Is is that a sense you get uh, around the Yankees right now? It is, to be honest with you. And I think, Blake, uh, look right now and, and at BaseballReference.com, which does a good job of tracking the postseason odds and takes in a, a lot of different elements in those algorithms, Right now, Blake, the Yankees have a 29% chance to make the playoffs, even with the expanded postseason field, 29%. Um, we don't know yet when Aaron Judge comes back. That's obviously a huge question for them. And, and we know well, it's been well documented. Uh, I think we can all recite it by, <laughs> by memory, the, the difference in, in winning percentage between when Judge is playing and when he's not. And he's still not. And, and to your point, the Yankees are not necessarily a team that in this moment that I would describe as, an, as a real obvious seller because, to be candid, their players are either clearly a part of their future, like Judge or Volpe to, to an extent, or this is the team of underperforming veterans. And there's not going to be a market right now for Donaldson, for LeMayhew. Maybe they could move one of their younger position players, but, but honestly, those are the players they're going to need because this team is getting old, and, and it's been injury-prone. Um, they've had to rely on a lot of players called up from the minor leagues. There's just I don't see a whole lot of scenarios in which the Yankees are terribly active because you're exactly right. They have not shown enough. I mean, they're a last-place team right now. They have not shown enough to the baseball world that they're a legitimate buyer right now. 
Um, and and so I, I think that it might be a, a relatively quiet deadline for the Yankees. They're obviously hoping the judge comes back. For that reason, they're probably not going to necessarily take the team apart or, or trade off key assets the way they did years ago with Andrew Miller and Aroldis Chapman. They're, they're stuck, Blake. They are, they are stuck right now. And uh, that is bad news for the Yankees and probably good news for the rest of the American League East. Well, the rest of the American League East that are taking care of their business, the Rays obviously have come back down to earth a little bit, but the three teams ahead of the Yankees, Baltimore, Toronto, Boston, have all won eight of their last ten. Uh, the Orioles had even, had even won eight in a row uh, at one point before dropping a couple here. Um, let Let's spin it to the Blue Jays. John, I'm sure you saw Alec Manoa have uh, another rough one last night. You know, they're committed, it sounds like, to keeping him in the rotation for right now. Hyunjin Ryu is going to make what could be his final rehab start on the weekend for for AAA Buffalo. Uh, When you look at the Blue Jays and how this AL East race stacks up, how the wild card race stacks up, how aggressive do you anticipate the Blue Jays being? Well, I think they'll be aggressive at at certain parts of their roster. I I do think that they they should get one more bat who, who they could potentially move around the diamond. Uh, ideally, still uh, left-handed. I know there's a bit of an argument. Do you try to go for a righty for a lefty? I, I think you need someone else who will hit good pitching, and and that's I still think one area of improvement is it at second base? Is it an outfield slash DH kind of a bat? Um, I, I do think that there are enough teams that are moving guys to where they could make a move like that. I also think the bullpen is another clear clear spot. Uh, just to add in one more layer, uh, given the uncertainty about Romano, just helping him get to the finish line. I, I think even whenever Jordan is is back to quote unquote 100 percent, you know we're we're almost to August and he's thrown a lot in the last couple of years, and and I think that he's going to need. Uh, a really strong co-pilot in, at the end of the game. Um, and I think that, you know, we saw obviously earlier in, in the week here, Pearson at times getting into the games earlier. You know, those, it frees you up to use Pearson in different ways if if you've got someone else that you really, really can rely on at the end of the game. So I do think bullpen, additional bat, but this is not a team that to me needs a ton of, of modification i think especially with the rotation um it's not necessarily uh the greatest sign how things went for manoa last night but you look at the the fact that ryu is coming back he did face you know a team that's been inconsistent in san diego but still has some pretty big names there so i i think that they their rotation is not dominant but i would describe it as sufficient and and they could potentially you know look at someone maybe like a Michael Lorenzen from Detroit who could do both could be a starter could be a reliever but there's such a thing as as too many starters to have I, I think when you're at this stage of the season I, I would never say that in the early part but when you're just trying to get Ryu back and adjusted you're still committed to to Manoa um, you still believe Kikuchi can be a solid back end starter I I just don't know. Um, if adding a, another full-time starting pitcher is is really what they need at the moment, unless there's an injury, because they want to make sure that they've got the guys who they've they've already had a position in the rotation to be in a good in a good rhythm as you enter the, the stretch run. So I, I think rotation is is fine, um, and then you you want to add in probably a, maybe a reliever and then uh, certainly one more bat to the lineup as well. So not specific to the Blue Jays. Uh, let, let's just talk about the starting pitching market in general because if whether if it's not the Jays, there are going to be teams that that want to address uh, their starting rotation here. When we look at who the 
okay, this team is definitely selling list is they're pretty bad teams that don't have very many good pitchers. It's uh, it's shocking that the bad teams don't have a ton of bad guys. It feels like for a couple of teams, these next two weeks could be really big in terms of nudging a team into the seller's market or, or keeping them out of it. Is there a team or two that you're particularly focused on the results for, say, this next week to, to see which direction they ultimately take? Cleveland. For me, and Aaron Savali uh, will start tonight, uh, or this afternoon, actually. Uh, they're, they're a game and a half back of, of Minnesota, and their pitching is is always been one of the more stable features of their team. They're pretty young still, um, but I, I think Aaron Savali, especially with Bieber out and, and with Bieber's injury, you'd have to expect he's not going to be traded, um, that if they stumble in the next 10 days, that, that perhaps Savali becomes more available than we thought. Um, as it stands now, they're a game under 500, but they're chasing the Twins, who have not exactly been the most dominant first-place team in, in modern baseball history. So um, we have to wait and see how things play out the next week or so, but I, I really believe Savali is someone that could be available. I, I, I don't think the Mariners, for all their inconsistency, if they make a move, they probably trade one of their younger pitchers for a similarly situated bat in service time, such as the, the idea we've been talking about for a long time, a Cardinals-Mariners swap. You know, could they trade Brian Wu for Brendan Donovan, something like that. You know, that, that kind of a deal is there and, and probably is available to them. But I, I don't see the Mariners becoming outright sellers, although maybe uh, old friend Teoscar Hernandez could be, uh, could be moved depending on how they play in the next 10 days or so if there's a sufficient interest in, in Teoscar from a rental standpoint. Uh, we know obviously what a good bat he can be. And, and if he gets hot, and we've, you know, Jays fans have seen this, if he gets hot, he carries your team for a couple of weeks. And the, when, when you've got two months left of the season, that, that, that potential is, is really enticing for teams. I, I think, too, you know, the Cubs – some have said that they're still within striking distance. I, I don't see it. I, I think Stroman gets traded. I, I'd be surprised if he doesn't. Uh, I think the Padres, and you're seeing them right now, they're stable enough that they, they want to make a run at this thing. And, and you know, if, if things really go sideways in the next 10 days or so, maybe they move Snell and Hayter. But I don't think they're going to trade Soto. The, the team is stuck and, and really doesn't have a whole ton of movable assets at the moment is, is the Mets. The Mets are kind of in a really difficult position. They're six games under 500. I, I, I don't see, Blake, this team to really um, be especially active at the deadline. They've got a lot of older players who aren't performing, and that, as you know, older plus underperforming is not usually a recipe for a, a really easy trade at, at, at this time. No, I don't think so. Um, John, it is, I don't want to put an answer in your mouth, but the team I'm most fascinated by on the buyer side is the Baltimore Orioles. They, they've been very good. They have one of the best systems in, in baseball still. They've graduated a bunch of talent to the majors. And while general manager Michael Elias has been pretty patient with things and very, pretty deliberate with, with how aggressive they'll be financially and putting prospects on the table are where, where do they rank, they rank for you in terms of teams you're most interested to see how they operate these next couple of days? Well, they can do anything. They can do anything they want to do. They have that amount of talent. Now the question comes, you know, how, what is their appetite? Would they go in for a rental they, they can play on Shoei if they want to because the Angels would have to, to have their ears perk up if there was a phone call from Mike Elias because of all the young talent that he's got. To your point, they've graduated a number of guys. They still have a really strong 
group of guys in, in the minor leagues. They've they've already added this year Kowser, Westberg, uh, Gunnar Henderson. I think has really emerged and established himself as a legitimate frontline position player in in this league. So there's there's a lot to like about the Orioles as a trade fit. I they may be comfortable w- with a a a play for Shohei on some level. Uh, I I do think that that would be a a tremendous boon for that organization because I I was making this point earlier in the week, Blake, it's, it's a short term trade, but it can be a forever impact on your brand. If you've got Shohei. and let's say he gets 60 home runs, there's going to be an iconic replay that is going to go around the world to all baseball fans in the U S Canada, Japan, everywhere, that's going to have Shoei hitting home run number 60 wearing that uniform, wearing a Baltimore uniform, wearing a Tampa uniform. There is incredible brand value in that. And uh, I've seen that up close. I covered the Mariners for a season, and I saw what Ichiro meant to that franchise and what he still means to that franchise, even long after he's done playing there. You know, that, that is a special part of, of the reverence that – you see in Japanese baseball culture and in Japanese culture in general, it's just, it's a special part of the way the game is celebrated in, in that great country. And I just think that um, whoever gets showing and if it's the, if it's the Orioles, it is a rental, but it's not because uh, I think his, his imprimatur will be impacted on that organization or any organization for as long as the game is played in a, in a pretty profound way. So I think that adds another layer, Blake, on what is just a fascinating story right now in Major League Baseball. Yeah, it's going to be a, an exciting couple of weeks here. Exciting game tonight down, down in, in Anaheim uh, as that Yankees-Angels series continues. An exciting weekend for you uh, in Cooperstown. Appreciate you making the time out this morning for us, John. Uh, have a great time tonight. Have a great time in Cooperstown. Thanks, Blake. As you know, there's only one franchise that can claim both Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland. <laughs> the Toronto Blue Jays. The there Blue you. Jays, a couple former Jays there. I'll be, I'll be there on the scene. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. All right. Thanks so much, John. Uh, John Morosi of MLB Network. A uh, little programming note. We're, we're going to take a break. We've got Sweeney Murti on the uh, other side. Um, but... Ross Atkins is scheduled to speak to media today around 3 p.m. Uh, if that goes as scheduled, we'll have it live on Sportsnet 590, the fan and Sportsnet.ca. Um, not sure if this is uh, related to some sort of news that's coming or, or if it's just that, you know, Ross Atkins does semi-regular media availability, but it sometimes doesn't seem to follow a, a pattern or a flow. So we'll see what that's about. Um, but if that goes as scheduled around 3 p.m., we'll have it for you here on the radio We'll have it for you on sportsnet.ca. We're going to take a break. Sweeney Murti on the other side as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, We've got about 15 minutes left with you. As a reminder, Ross Atkins speaking around 3 p.m. today. Uh, We'll have that on Sportsnet 590, the fan, and probably on Sportsnet.ca as well. So keep an ear out for that 3 p.m. We're joined now, formerly covering the Yankees for WFAN, now at MLB. Sweeney Marti. Sweeney, how are you? I'm good, Blake. How you doing? I am. Uh, I'm doing well, man. I, I I really really enjoyed your your essay. Kind of, I guess we'd call it an essay. Your article on MLB.com. Uh, 
earlier this week. Um, the, the headline item, of course, being Arjun Amala being selected in the first round. It turns out he gets picked by the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, I mean, you, you, you said it in the piece. You've never had more in common with a baseball player than, than you do with him. How special was that moment for, for you as, as a longtime baseball fan and as a, uh, an Indian American? Yeah, it's um, it was it's unique, right? Like it's never happened, and I think the you know the idea that I kind of tried to put across is that you know that you know it's been a few generations of of Indian immigrants uh, to the U.S., and all of a sudden the athletic arena is opening up to uh, uh, to people of of this generation, and um, it's it's just something fun to see, and and even just more specifically, India is a very big country. With um, with you know diverse um, backgrounds with languages uh, and religion, and it turns out like his parents are from you know the same region of India as as my parents came from, uh, you know a few decades earlier. Uh, we speak the same language in our house growing up, and just the idea of growing up as I grew up as a baseball fan, he grew up as a baseball player. And he you know, took that next step, and he first got onto my radar a couple of months ago when a friend of mine who's a, who's a scout for, for a major league team, he kind of told me about him and said, you know, you should, you should look into this kid. You know, I, I, I think his background's similar to yours, and he's probably going to be a first-round pick, a pretty high one too. So um, I think that, uh, you know, the more I dug in on him, I got to speak to his parents, and, um, you know, it was – it was just something that kind of made me want to describe a little bit more about what my upbringing was. And I've spent now my adult life in media and around baseball. And he's kind of taken this next step of actually um, getting a chance to play professionally and uh, really looking forward to what he can do. I got to say the inclusion of, of the photos of 10 year old Sweeney uh, playing baseball hmm. was, was a nice touch as well. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry that side didn't work out, but uh, it's great that yeah, I think you can tell if you saw the pictures, I was about 12, it was almost 12. Uh, I think you can tell by the uh, the size of my arms that uh, that I wasn't going to be able to swing a bat with enough ferocity <laughs> to catch up to a fastball much longer than, than than that age right there. Hey man, I'm in media too, so I I, I get it. <laughs> I've been through the same thing. Um, curious, so you so you know in in this essay you you kind of reflect on how at the time um, when you were growing up and playing baseball, you know there were far fewer. Um, first-generation Indian immigrants into America, and, and you refer to baseball as the great assimilator. Um, for you, um, a, as a kid and finding that sport, how important was baseball to you for that element of just growing up and finding common ground with, with people as, you know, obviously now there there are more Indian immigrants in, in America and here in Canada. Maybe it's a little easier to find that sort of community, but for you, how, how big was baseball for that element for you as a kid? Yeah, and, and, and not necessarily even just sticking within the community, but the idea that you can be, you know, part of the larger community with a little more ease. Like I was, you know, there weren't very many uh, Indians in my, you know, mostly white middle class neighborhood. Um, and you remember, I'm growing up in the 1970s. It's, uh, you know, it's a decade after civil rights. And there, are, you know, there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, baggage in the U.S., with what happened in the 1960s and and racial relations and things like that. So uh, growing up shortly after that, and that's, it's all in hindsight that you realize how, how close in time that was, but you don't realize the time. Uh, but understanding that, you know, that 
um, you know, whether it's subtle or overt, there, there, there is discrimination in various forms. Uh, but you find pockets in your neighborhood and your community that is accepting. Uh, and I definitely found that. Um, but the idea of understanding that, you know, sometimes you still feel like you're different, but you understand that, hey, we root for the same baseball team. We we both like the game, and we know this, and and those are things that are are common ground when when there could be things from your home life or your your family's tradition that seem you know um, you know literally and figuratively foreign to the people around you. Um, you, know, you you look for something common, and and baseball was that. Whether it was playing it on the playground or watching it on TV. And, you know, I grew up at a time when we grew up, you know, near Philadelphia, uh, you know, a little bit outside, but, uh, uh, you know, about two hours outside, but that was the closest city um, where the Phillies were a, a great team and a playoff team and a World Series team. It became something for us to root for and find common ground with. Um, so when it comes to Arjun and what you've gotten to, you mentioned you, you've spoken to his parents. You've obviously seen, you know, the interviews, the post-draft interviews, the pre-draft interviews, things like that for one of the absolute youngest players in the draft, he's still just 17 for him to already be thinking things like, Hey, I I can be, you know, an inspiration for other Indian Americans or, or Indian kids um, to get involved with the game and see themselves at that level. How, how special for you is that to hear? And how, what does that tell us about Arjun that, that he's, you know, kind of taking that on at, at such a young age and aware of, the importance of him being a first round pick and potentially a major leaguer. Yeah, that was kind of really like uh, almost a jumping off point, in the con- but, but really more the conclusion for why I wanted to write that piece, because he's taken that responsibility um, and, and showed me a growth and a, a maturity already at a certain age that, that I never had. And, you know, frankly now at 53, I wonder if I still have it uh, or if I have it yet, you know, like, you know, understanding that you have this role and accepting of it, you know, and I think that's part of being part of a larger community and and a couple of decades past where it is a little bit more acceptable. You know, you know, I I was somebody who was trying to fit in uh, and didn't necessarily think about the uh, leadership role of, of what the next generation is. And that, that Arjun is thinking like that uh, really impressed me and listening to his interviews. And listen, I, I grew up, uh, you know, uh, on the radio and wanting to be on the radio and TV and, and doing things like that. And I was able to do that. Uh, and I, and I felt like at 17, I had a pretty good sense of a presentation for, for radio TV style, things like that. But watching his interviews just, you know, that's just him being him, right? Like, and, and I mean, he's he's a ball player, uh, but he's got a, a certain charisma about him that uh, I just stood out to me in, in the interviews that I watched. So, um, and the fact that he's accepting of that and understanding that that this this is a role for him, um, and that's something that I would not have foreseen myself uh, uh, thinking uh, when I was when I was seventeen or. 27 or 37 or even 47 to, to a degree, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, uh, to, to place that kind of thing on somebody's shoulders um, willingly. And I feel like he really shows a certain maturity in accepting that. 
Um, when it comes to where he landed, now obviously a lot can happen with prospects. Everyone gets traded at some point, but he lands with the Toronto Blue Jays where the greater Toronto area has a very large South Asian community. Um, do, do you like that landing spot? Does that does that help take this story to another level for you that, that he's landed in one of the most multicultural and, and South Asian heavy uh, cities in Major League Baseball? It's, one, it's really one of the first things I thought about because, um, you know, as, as his name you know, basically looking at, at, you know, talking to the people I know around the sport and looking at some of the mock draft projections and things like that, you know, once you got to around pick nine, 10, you kind of started paying attention and say, okay, he's going to go soon. And as he fell further through the teams, you know, kind of wondered like, what was some of the reasoning behind that? Like how, how did people jockey for position in those in the first round draft order? Um, and then he gets taken at 20 by the Blue Jays. All of a sudden, it said, you know, thinking about the city of Toronto, like you mentioned, I've been there many times over the years. My travels uh, cover the New York Yankees. Um, that's the first thing that really stood out to me. It was like, wow, that's that's actually a perfect spot. Um, there's so much to enjoy if he indeed is able to, um, you know, to get through the system and, and, and up to join the Blue Jays at some point. Uh, it is absolutely a city that um, – that that works for him there. So, uh, yeah, that's something. And I know that, you know, people I've talked to around the Blue Jays that I've known for years, are like they're, they were thrilled that he fell to them in that spot. Uh, a little surprised as well. So, and that's mostly speaking from the talent, from the baseball talent side. Like, you know, this is a, this is a guy that fell to 20 that, um, that probably could have gone higher. So, um, I, I know the people there are very excited for that. Sweeney, uh, pivoting a little bit here. I, I know your job at MLB now is a little bit of everything, but you are a, a long, were a longtime Yankees reporter. You look at this year's version of the Yankees team, the uncertainty around Aaron Judge. Uh, you, you, are are you still in the ad camp? Are you in the sell camp? Or are you in the kind of just ride it out camp? It, it feels like they're in, despite only being two and a half out of a playoff spot, they're in a, a weird position these next two weeks. Yeah, and I've seen versions of this team before that have kind of struggled to find their their way, and whether it's injuries or other things that have taken them there. You know, usually by the time they get to about you know July 29th, you know they're they're wheeling and dealing and making you know making a couple of additions. And um, I, 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 you know, as and I'm not following as closely as I have in years past with them specifically, but I, I kind of would think that that's where they're headed. Um, I think the more disturbing thing, and it is that you know they made some some big investments in Anthony Rizzo and DJ LeMahieu, and those you know those guys are not um, living up to that right now. Got, listen, losing Aaron Judge from your lineup will will affect things in a great way, um, regardless of how the other players are playing. Uh, I had a general manager tell me once that there is there are no contingency plans for your best players. You simply can't replace them with other players uh, of their equals. So uh, losing Aaron Judge was going to be a big blow no matter what. But the Yankees did sign Anthony Rizzo and DJ LeMayu with certain expectations, and those expectations haven't been met. Gleyber Torres has certain expectations, and he's a, you know, a year and change away from free agency, and you're wondering what his future is uh, at this point um, because he hasn't taken that next step uh, you know, to, uh, toward being a superstar. He's still only 26, and, and, you, and you're thinking that um, the that there was a little bit more room there and that hasn't happened yet. So those are three key figures that could have helped 
uh, you know, ease some of the loss of Aaron Judge, and their performance hasn't taken it there. You know, Josh Donaldson, who you guys know very well, uh, obviously, you know, uh, just where he is physically at, at this age probably seems to be the biggest thing um, that, that's hindering his performance. So um, I, I would think that there is room to add here. Uh, there's certainly not much of a seller. They never are. Just that there was just one year, really. Um, but I feel like um, I feel like there there has to be room to add um, and, and figure out you know outfielder um, another another position player that could help jumpstart this offense even when Aaron Judge comes back. It's going to be a, a fascinating couple weeks here in the American League East. Fascinating couple years tracking the progress of New Jays prospect Arjun Mala uh, Sweeney. Thank you so much for taking the time out, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Blake. Appreciate it. Sweeney Marti of MLB, uh, formerly uh, of W Fan. Uh, we are just about wrapped here. Reminder, Ross Atkins speaking today around 3 o'clock. Um, assuming that goes to schedule, we'll have it here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan as well as Sportsnet.ca. Blair and Barker in their usual 5-7 to seven slot to get you ready for Jose Barrios against you, Darvish. 7 p.m. first pitch a little later. Uh, Blair and Barker have you for Jay's Talk post game. As well, uh, Ben Schulman and Jesse Rubinoff are coming up next. Thank you to Sweeney for coming on to John Morosi, Dan Schulman, Ryan Dempster, and Keegan. Uh, thanks, as always, to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Jay's Talk Plus will be back 10 a.m. tomorrow. Nice little 1 p.m. start tomorrow. Um, that has been, if you look at the uh, t- tickets available, it's been one of the hottest tickets of the summer. This Thursday afternoon game against the Padres. That one is scheduled to be Chris Bassett against Blake Snell. So tomorrow's show should be a lot of fun uh, breaking down tonight's game and rolling right into that one. We'll have Ben Nicholson Smith in studio with us uh, for an hour tomorrow. Uh, we'll also have Ben Clemens of Fangraphs who's starting to roll out his annual trade value column. You might want to take a look at where a couple Blue Jays land compared to this time last year. Uh, pretty fascinating to look at here a couple weeks out from the trade deadline. Lots more trade talk to come in the coming weeks as well. I will talk to you guys tomorrow, 10 a.m., Jay's Talk Plus, Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360.